Once upon a time, there was a new crossover that refused to play by the rules. It flipped the script and made all the others look like fools. Featuring styling that's sexier by far and handles like a rock star. Introducing the first ever Toyota CHR. Enjoy agile handling in the body of a seductive crossover that comes with standard 18-inch alloy wheels. The first ever Toyota CHR. The perfect ride to spin your own tail. Toyota. Let's go places. Blog Talk Radio. Good morning, everyone. This is Johnny Tan, author of From My Mama's Kitchen, Food for the Soul, Recipes for Living. Welcome to From My Mama's Kitchen Talk Radio Show. My guest for this morning is Louis A. Del Monte. He is an award-winning physicist, inventor, futurist, best-selling author, featured speaker, and CEO of Del Monte & Associates. Over 35 years, Louis was a leader in the development of micro electronics, integrated circuit sensors, and microelectromechanical systems for IBM and Honeywell. His patents and technology developments currently used by Honeywell, IBM, and Samsung are fundamental to the fabrication of integrated circuit and sensors. Lewis led hundreds of physicists, engineers, and technology professionals engage in micro to nanotechnology development for both the Department of Defense, and commercial applications. He is literally a man whose career have changed the way we work, play, and make war. Lewis is also the recipient of the H.W. Swift Award for Scientific Engineering Achievements and the Lund Award for Management Excellence. Lewis and I will be discussing his newly released book, Nano Weapons, A Growing Threat to Humanity. Good morning, Lewis. Welcome back to From My Mouse Kitchen Talk Radio. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing fine, and uh, thank you for that wonderful introduction, Johnny. It's fantastic to have you on the air with me. The last time you were a guest on the show was in 2014, and back then we were talking about artificial intelligence. And now I'm excited but nervous at the same time to talk about the enhancement of that technology, which could possibly be disastrous for mankind. That's true. And um, over that period of time, um, I was working on the book that just uh, was published by Potomac. Uh, it came out in April. Uh, nanoweapons are growing threat to humanity. And of course, it builds on the work that I had done previously, and it builds on my career that uh, at uh, both IBM and Honeywell. Fantastic. Congratulations, by the way, on the newly released book. It is a very interesting read. I encourage everyone to pick the book up. It would really open your eyes up in terms of how advanced technology has come in this 21st century. And I have to tell you this. I mean, we talked about this before you came on the air. The information is out there, but it's scattered all over the place, so to speak. And I coin you as the Mr. Google man that kind of put everything together into the right perspective to kind of give people the opportunity to kind of take a look at this, digest it, and make up your own mind about where we're heading towards the future. Uh, that was my intent. It's uh, written in layperson prose. You don't have to be a scientist to understand it. 
But it goes into enough depth that uh, a a, um, person with a scientific background would get uh, significant insights into just what is going on in nanotechnology and how nanotechnology is being applied to military weapons, which then become nanoweapons. Fantastic. Please give us a quick walkthrough of your life from childhood to the present moment. Well, I was uh, born and raised in New Jersey. Uh, I did my undergraduate work at uh, St. Peter's University. I uh, graduated uh, with a um, BS degree in both physics and chemistry. And I was the only person, I think, till this day that had a... um, double major. They they actually didn't want to do that, but the dean um, agreed with me that I had all the credits to do it and that uh, I should be allowed to have that. Uh, I went on to win a scholarship to, um, I had a scholarship at, uh, at St. Peter's University, then I went on to win another scholarship at uh, Fordham University. I finished uh, my master's degree there. After finishing that, uh, I got married to my wonderful wife of 49 years. We just celebrated our 49th wedding anniversary. And uh, we have two adult children, four grandchildren. Uh, Following my graduation from uh, Fordham, uh, I went to work uh, for IBM for three years. Wonderful company. Uh, Then, uh, following that, I went to work for Honeywell, um, rose through the ranks to become one of the top executives. They only had 200 executives in the entire company of 60,000 people, and so I was in a position to direct the work of uh, hundreds and hundreds of people spread out uh, between Minneapolis, uh, Colorado, and Mexico. Uh, I had groups in all locations and uh, clients around the world. And we worked on, uh, I had groups working on uh, commercial um, applications and uh, groups working on military applications. And it's the military applications that this book primarily focuses on, but there's also a lot of information in the book about the peaceful applications of nanotechnology. And uh, to a certain extent, I had to actually utilize that information to write the book because the government is very secretive about the use of nanotechnology and weapons. And so I gave a lot of examples of how nanotechnology is used in peaceful pursuits and then made analogies to how this could actually then be also used as a weapon. What is nanotechnology? Well, I use the definition that's, uh, that the United States Nano, uh, National Nanotechnology Initiative uh, website uh, uses, uh, and I'll just quote it. It's quoted as, nanotechnology is a science, engineering, and technology conducted at the nanoscale, which is about 1 to 100 nanometers. Now, 
that may not make a lot of sense to a lot of people because when we're talking about nanometers, we're talking about the metric system. And in the United States, we typically use the English system. So we talk in terms of uh, inches, quarter of an inch, inch, uh, foot, gallon, etc. In the metric system, they're talking about uh, millimeters, centimeters, nanometers, meters, etc. Uh, but to give people an idea of what we mean by nanotechnology, when we say it's in the uh, nanoscale, which is 1 to 100 nanometers, if you take the diameter of a typical human hair, not the length, but the diameter, it's about 1,000 nanometers in diameter. So we're talking about... Uh, a one thousandth of the diameter represents the nanoscale. Uh, another interesting uh, way to think about it is to uh, gaze at your hand for uh, uh, a period of time, say 30 seconds, and in that period of time, your fingernails will have grown one nanometer. So that's the that is the type of technology, the features, the dimensional features of the technology we're talking about. It's insane. <laughs> yeah. It's hard to get your head around it. I agree with that. Oh, my gosh. When did the concept of nanotechnology begin? Well, actually, it started with Nobel laureate uh, Richard uh, Feynman. And um, he gave a talk in uh, 1959 at the Physical Society in California. And the uh, talk was entitled, There's Plenty of Room at the Bottom. And in essence, what he said was, look, there's no reason, there's no physical laws why we can't move atoms around and rearrange molecules uh, that uh, exists that it would be possible for that technology for us to do that if we had a technology that allowed us to do it and so it it was a at that point a theoretical concept as th as most things in science begin with it was a theoretical concept uh in 1981 so we're talking roughly about uh, 22 years later mm -hmm. There was the invention of the scanning tunneling microscope, and that was a Nobel Prize winning invention. And what it allowed us to do for the first time in history was to actually see atoms. We could actually use that microscope to see that atoms existed. Now, until that time, we had plenty of data that you could infer that there were atoms. Uh, there's no doubt about that they existed, but no one had seen an atom. And that microscope allowed us, it's not an optical microscope, it's an electronic microscope, but it actually gave us images of atoms. Then in uh, 1986, Kim Eric Drexler 
who was an American engineer, and he, he actually got his Ph.D. in nanotechnology. But at that time, there was no such thing as nanotechnology. In 1986, Kim Eric Drexler came along, and he wrote a book called uh, The Engines of Creation, uh, The Coming Era of Nanotechnology. So for the first time, he coins the word nanotechnology. And uh, this caused a lot of stir in the scientific field, as many new concepts do and many new uh, uh, in, uh, technologies do. And so there was a lot of uh, controversy back and forth. But for the most part, uh, Drexler's book was very well received. It won awards, uh, was considered the best scientific book of the year. And uh, But still, nobody had, uh, we were getting closer. We had a name for it, <laughs> but nobody had done it. Uh, in 1989, Don Eigler at IBM, where the scanning electron microscope was invented, he uh, used the tip of the scanning electron microscope to move around atoms. And uh, he spelled out the word or the acronym IBM. And for the first time in history, humankind was able to move individual atoms into specific spots. And that was the beginning of nanotechnology. Very, very interesting. So why did you decide to write about the use of nanotechnology as a weapon of war? Well, if you look at uh, and this is the, also the reason why I wrote about artificial intelligence and the dangers mm -hmm. that surround artificial intelligence. In 2008, uh, experts surveyed at the Global Catastrophic Risk Conference at the University of Oxford suggested there was a 19% chance of human extinction by the end of this century. And they cited two things tied for number one, each with a 5% probability. One was artificial intelligence, and the other was uh, nanoweapons. It's very interesting on that particular statistic. You're correct. Nanotechnology all of a sudden propels itself way to the top. The least of our worries is germ warfare. Well, they, they put that down. Uh, an engineered pandemic, I think, came in mm -hmm. third or something along that line. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's uh, not as uh, – it's up there. It's in the top uh, five things that may do us in. But it wasn't number one. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, it, and uh, biological agents are a uh, – are a worry. Uh, you have rogue states that are not abiding by uh, the treaties that we have in place and uh, use chemical weapons, use biological weapons. And so they are a worry. Uh, and uh, it's something that uh, uh, we should concern ourselves with. And as you know, when, when we had the anthrax um, epidemic or scare back Oh, a couple of decades ago, 
we were busy preparing uh, uh, antibiotics to deal with that. In the case of a, uh, a nanoweapons, which could end up being a technological plague, we really don't have any kind of an antidote that at this time. We're looking at here as uh, it's so wide that it's very difficult to contain. Yeah. I, I probably should define, just to be perfectly clear, what a nanoweapon is. Mm-hmm. Any time that you apply nanotechnology to a, uh, for a military purpose in a weapon, it becomes, by definition, a nanoweapon. So it doesn't necessarily have to be small. It, it has to have in it nanotechnology. But once it includes nanotechnology, it could be a very large weapon. Mm-hmm. Now, I'll give you an, uh, an example yeah. of a very large weapon that you wouldn't say is a nanoweapon. It doesn't look like a nanoweapon, and that would be the massive ordnance bomb that we dropped on uh, Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If you look at the payload of that bomb, uh, we have an eight-ton payload. And, but if you look at the yield... It's uh, 11 tons of TNT yield. It has, although the payload, the warhead, only weighs 8 tons, the actual explosive destructive capabilities of the weapon are equivalent to 11 tons. So how do we get the extra 3 tons out of it? Mm-hmm. Well, if you look at the makeup, and you won't find this in the textbooks and, and so forth, But the makeup of the bomb includes uh, what they call aluminum powder. And it's pretty well publicized that the U.S. government has been working on nano-aluminum to boost, uh, as a catalyst, to boost the output of conventional explosives. So uh, in in my view, and I wrote an article for the HuffPost on it, uh, they're using nano-aluminum to boost the output of that mm-hmm. uh, that ordinance, and so even though it's a, uh, a an extremely large bomb, it's the largest bomb we make. Uh, it's still a nano weapon. Very interesting. Uh, drones used in the strikes that the U.S. government have used, and in some ways terrorists like ISIS and so forth, are those considered as nano weapons? Well, it would depend. Um, if they're using technology, uh, uh, say electronics, if you look at uh, the current electronics that are being made today, if you go to a computer store and you buy a, uh, a, a computer mm-hmm. with a uh, Intel uh, Core M processor, it, it is nanotechnology. The dimensions of that are about seven nanometers, are the uh, dimensions of the various interconnects on the integrated circuit chip. So if the drone is using nanoelectronics, then to a certain extent, it's a a nanoweapon. It may or may not be. Uh, Now, again, the U.S. Air Force and the DOD doesn't publish uh, that type of information. But it stands to reason that as they build each generation, they're going to incorporate 
the most advanced electronics they can because it gives it more capabilities. So it stands to reason that, yes, uh, each successive generation uh, will become a nanoweapon. What's actually happening in drones uh, today, if you look at uh, fighter planes by the U.S. Air Force, a third of them are drones. They're not, yeah. they, they don't have pilots in the conventional sense. Uh, they do have a pilot that may be stationed in Nevada, which is uh, fairly typical uh, at Nellis Air Force Base. Uh, but they're, uh, the actual drone is in the theater of conflict. Mm-hmm. And so um, the way drones are going, uh, we're familiar with the large drones, the Predator, etc., and they fire a, a fairly potent weapon, the Hellfire missile. But if you look at the direction drones are going, where they're putting their money and, and what they're trying to do, they're trying to reduce them to the size of insects. Mm-hmm. So the Army, for example, uh, announced uh, the development. This was in uh, 2014. They announced the development of a uh, of a drone-sized fly, a fly, a drone the size of a household fly. Mm-hmm. Now, it was tethered. You know, it had a wire to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you can be sure of one thing. If it's being announced in the public... It's very old news. <laughs> it's not. <laughs> it's not the cutting edge. <laughs> so if they're announcing they had uh, tested a uh, in 2014 that they tested a tethered fly, yeah, you can be almost certain they have a more advanced version already uh, in development and right. uh, working. Uh, DARPA has also been working on uh, the technology that would allow a, a drone-sized fly to fly inside a building and not run into anything mm-hmm. and do surveillance or a nefarious purpose. For example, a drone-sized fly, mm-hmm. one that you wouldn't pay any attention to because it would look similar to any other fly, could, for example, place a, a very small amount uh, of as 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 little as 100 nanograms of uh, botulism H, which mm-hmm. is the most toxic poison known to uh, humanity. It's uh, so toxic that uh, the formulation and the uh, and the structure of it is uh, uh, purposely withheld because we don't want anybody making it up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But uh, you cannot taste, see, or in any way detect 100 nanograms of botulism H. So that fly conceivably could uh, deposit into glass of water that mm-hmm. minute amount of poison and carry out an assassination. Very, very interesting. By the way, you're listening to From My Mama's Kitchen Talk Radio. I'm Johnny Tan, your host, and my guest is Louis A. Del Monte. He is an award-winning physicist, inventor, futurist, best-selling author, featured speaker, and CEO of Del Monte & Associates. We're discussing his newly released book, Nano Weapons, A Growing Threat to Humanity. Louis, what countries have this kind of technology? 
Well, uh, there is a, uh, and I, I, I characterized it as a new Cold War. Mm-hmm. Most people, if you did a survey today, uh, actually a survey was done uh, in 2012 and uh, by Harris, which they're excellent at doing polls and what have you. And in 2012, they found out that uh, 60% of the uh, U.S. population never heard the word nanotechnology, uh, let alone nanoweapons. So uh, there's been no recent survey, but I would think that's changing a bit. But I would still think that there is a significant portion of the population that's unaware that that nanotechnology exists and that we're applying it to weapons. But nonetheless, since 2000, under President Clinton, the United States established the National Nanotechnology Initiative, and it uh, directs uh, 25 different agencies of the government and coordinates their work. Uh, Through that agency, we have funneled uh, taxpayer money over $20 billion dollars. So we're not talking about a small investment. We, we've put tw- over $20 billion. This is separate from the investments that companies like Intel will make to uh, develop uh, a nanotechnology or nanoelectronics. So if you look at uh, the amount of, of uh, money that's going into nanotechnology, uh, it's enormous. The current market for uh, nano commercial nanotechnology current market and we're talking mm-hmm. cosmetics golf balls you name it there's mm-hmm. a lot of things that are using nanotechnology concrete glass steel it goes on and on the current market for nanotechnology worldwide is a trillion dollars that's huge yes it's, it's that big and it's huge. not going to get smaller it's going right. to continue to grow Nanotechnology is an enabling technology. It's not, it's not a single thing. So you're talking about, it's probably best to use the plurals, nanotechnologies, because when you get into the field of, say, biology, you're dealing with nanobiology. Mm-hmm. When you get into the field of electronics, you're dealing with nanoelectronics, and so on. How close are we to having a fully functional nanoweapon? We have them already. I don't think I truly answered your question of what countries are mm-hmm. uh, are at it. Yeah. Uh, the Cold War that we're in right now is uh, between ourselves, and we're the leader. Uh, China, who ranks second, and uh, Russia, who is a distant third. Russia is has poured an enormous amount of money into nano weapons, but their corruption. And uh, they're, uh, the type of uh, the, the very uh, poor links they have between uh, development and um, the universities, uh, uh, they just haven't been able to make much out of it. China, I think, is uh, trailing us by a few years. Uh, and most of that, I think, they're getting by uh, nefarious purposes. They're they're finding ways to use uh, cyber warfare to steal secrets mm-hmm. and so on. Uh, so 
but the leader in nanoweapons is the United States. And you can, uh, uh, I've developed that. There were no real uh, measures of how to measure the nano capability of a nation. And I had to develop a whole set of different measures uh, based on uh, uh, different parameters. And I did it uh, with no bias as to who would be first or second or third or anything like that. Mm-hmm. But it turns out the U.S. is well aware of the power of nanotechnology, has been at it for mm-hmm. uh, all, going on 20 years, and uh, uh, we have, at this time, we have the most capable nanoweapons. Uh, China would uh, probably rank number two, Russia a distant third, and close on the heels would be uh, Germany, who is developing a mini-nuke. Now, uh, mini-nukes, I should probably just mention what they are, because Mm -hmm. Germany, by uh, treaty, is not allowed to have nuclear weapons. After World War II, uh, treaties prevented Germany from having uh, nuclear weapons and weapons of mass destruction. A mini-nuke is is a nuclear weapon made using nanotechnology. Uh, It uses a small, uh, uses some isotopes of hydrogen, uh, tritium and deuterium, and uh, and a uh, nanoweapon laser. It weighs about five pounds, and it could fit inside your jacket pocket. Uh, The blast from that can be dialed from one ton to 100 tons of TNT. So you have something that weighs five pounds that could put out a blast of 100 tons of TNT. There's no appreciably, there's no appreciable fallout mm-hmm. or radioactivity. So you, you could say, you could argue that even though uh, the mechanism is uh, nuclear, uh, as far as the explosion, you could argue that it's a conventional weapon because it doesn't have the normal uh, radiation and fallout associated with the, with uh, nuclear weapons. Very, very interesting. So you're looking at a blasting power of a nuclear device, but yet, hey, once it's over seven days, let's get back to business. That's it. You could you could set it off uh, if if you put a uh, And that technology, uh, again, now the U.S. government is not going to be stating where it's using the technology and uh, how how close they are to having it and and so on. Uh, My take on it is we probably do have it. The others probably are very close or working on it. Um, The science, uh, although the government is very secretive about what they're developing, the science to do it is well known. It's not. Mm-hmm. It's not mysterious. Uh, just that it's an engineering problem, mm-hmm. and we are we are getting to the point now where we are we have the type of engineering that we could we could produce one. So we may actually have that type of a, a nano weapon. Other types that exist right now, uh, the U.S. Navy came out with a uh, laser. Mm-hmm. Now, 
you know, the military has been interested in lasers for a very long time. But this laser is uh, why it caught the attention of the uh, public. It's uh, like a Star Trek laser. <laughs> it's, uh, it's a little different than the other lasers that we have. Uh, this laser can be dialed as, uh, as they would on Star Trek. They'd say, put your faces on stun. Right. So it wouldn't kill a person. Well, this laser can, instead of just shooting a, a laser beam and destroying a plane or a missile in flight, it could actually uh, be dialed back to just disable it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, so the the interesting part about it, and uh, it's on the USS Ponce now. Now the mm-hmm. the Ponce, the USS Ponce, was a it was a more of a uh, cargo uh, ship uh, than uh, a supply vessel mm-hmm. than uh, anything else. And all of a sudden, when you look at the top ten lists of uh, of the U.S. most potent weapons, now it makes the list. Mm-hmm. Uh, why does it make that list? Uh, it makes some lists if you go to the Internet and look at it. Well, it makes the list because we just put an advanced weapon system on it. <laughs> this this weapon is so is small enough now mm-hmm. that it can be... Um, uh, mounted on uh, vehicles such as a uh, an army truck. So the army, for example, now would have mm-hmm. a capability of being able to take out cruise missiles using that that type of weapon. Right. So as far as what we have now, we we are using nano electronics. That's a, that's a given. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're using uh, nano catalysts in munitions. Uh, we are uh, producing nano particles, which is the simplest of all nano weapons. And we've been accused. There have been two headlines. Uh, one a few years back uh, that uh, we were accused by uh, Venezuelan scientists. Uh, as uh, assassinating uh, former President Hugo Chavez right. using a nano weapon while he gave his talk at the uh, uh, United Nations. And that the, the uh, effect it had on him was to cause cancer. Mm-hmm. Now, the reason why nanoparticles are so potent as a toxic agent is that they're very small and they can cross membranes that their bulk counterparts can't. So uh, if you consider your skin a membrane and you were to touch the bulk, uh, a bulk toxin, you may only have to wash your hands. It, it may not penetrate because it's too large. But in the case of nanoparticles, they can penetrate, and they can be radioactive. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and they're hard to detect. Uh, very few labs in the country would be able to detect that uh, the uh, that what caused the death of a person 
was a nanoparticle, a toxic nanoparticle. So, uh, and I don't want to give any ideas out, but it's, it is <laughs> in the book that you could have a yeah. suitcase filled with nanoparticles, toxic mm-hmm. nanoparticles, introduce them in the food chain, right. and wipe out a city. That's correct. So literally, mm-hmm. with the simplest of all nanoweapons, which we know how to make right now, you, can, you have a weapon of mass destruction. The most important thing is that it's very difficult to detect. We are actually getting some sort of a hint about nanoweapons in some ways. I guess you talk about it being in the public and so forth. When you were talking about what the Germans were working on, it reminded me of the ban on laptops. Because I fly around and I have my laptop with me and I'm looking at this as being crazy. Of course, I don't have intentions of blowing things up. So I have no earthly idea how to use those weapons, I guess, in a way. But if you have intentions, you can definitely work on something like that. And you talk about something that can be slipped into someone's pocket and you have a suicide warrior out there that couldn't care less. And so now there's really no deterrent on something like that. That's right. As a, as a point of fact, we have rogue nations now mm-hmm. that uh, have, it's well known now that they're, they have nuclear weapons, We're, and specifically North Korea and uh, Iran. And uh, uh, Iran, in particular, sees its mission in life to destroy the United States, even if it means their own destruction. So you're looking at rogue nations that now have weapons of mass destruction, and that's a, uh, a huge concern. Uh, we are aware of the power of, and most people are aware, of the destructive power of nuclear weapons. Mm-hmm. They've been around since uh, 1945. So uh, we have a demonstration of what they can do. And uh, there's been a lot written about nuclear weapons. Um, And we have defenses. We have an anti-ballistic missile defense system. It's uh, not as reliable as we would like, but we we are working on that. Uh, We have a Patriot missile defense system for uh, intermediate-range missiles. So we have capabilities, and we're aware of what... uh, Iran and uh, North Korea uh, may be able to do with their nuclear weapons. Uh, In a certain sense, that's less problematic than nanoweapons, Mm -hmm. because you can make nanoparticles in a house, in the basement of a house, on a tabletop, if you know how. This This is not a difficult technology to do so, you, if you have a disgruntled worker in a uh, nanoweapons factory, uh, that disgruntled worker uh, could could end up making uh, a nanoparticles that are toxic. Uh, so uh, he, uh, here you have a situation where it doesn't take a lot of sophistication to shrink the electronics and make a laser and get the uh, components, the, the, uh, <clears throat> the isotopes of hydrogen, et cetera, mm-hmm. to make the uh, uh, mini-nuke. But a simple nanoparticles can become a, a weapon. And so we need, we the United States, 
and mm-hmm. and part of my reason for writing the book is to raise the awareness that we need to understand that these weapons are out there, and although we're the leader, uh, it's a relative thing. We're, we're, the leadership in weapons is uh, similar to a horse race where you may have one or two uh, lengths uh, of the horse behind you. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the bottom line on it is that these other nations will will develop capabilities similar to the way the Soviet Union <clears throat> caught up with uh, nuclear capabilities to the United States and had mutually assured destruction. Unfortunately, with the rogue states, the doctrine of mutually assured destruction, especially in the case of Iran, where it's part of their... Uh, their religious beliefs uh, may not be an effective deterrent. Mm-hmm. So we we need to develop deterrents. And in the book, uh, I talked about fighting fire with fire. You mm-hmm. have the, when you're dealing with now weapons, you have to fight them at the level they exist. So that means you have to develop nano weapons that are in effect. Uh, capable of neutralizing other nanoweapons. <laughs> very, very interesting. Very, very interesting. You are listening to From My Mama's Kitchen Talk Radio. My guest is Luis A. Dalmonte. He is an award-winning physicist, inventor, futurist, best-selling author, featured speaker, and CEO of Dalmonte & Associates. We're discussing his newly released book, Nanoweapons, A Growing Threat to Humanity. I'm your host, Johnny Tan. Louis, let's talk about something that's very interesting in the book. What are nanobots? Well, a nanobot is a tiny robot that uh, can perform a, uh, like another robot, can perform a a specific function. Um, And uh, uh, you can think of it, um, uh, it, the the fly that we talked about, Mm -hmm. the drone fly, could be considered a nanobot. But actually, in time, nanobots will get uh, closer uh, to the size of bacteria than, than, uh, or, or to the size of the smallest insect we know, which is a uh, cherub wasp. Um, the point is, if nature can do it, nature builds with nanotechnology. That's how nature builds. Mm-hmm. It's it's uh, various creatures is using nanotechnology. So every process in the human body and every process in nature starts out at the nanotechnology level. So if nature can do it, conceivably in time, our technology will catch up to that. And we'll be able to build a nanobot about the size of a a cherub wasp. A nanobot is a tiny robot which could be pre-programmed to do a function. And that function could be, for example, in the case of the fly, it could be surveillance. Or the function, in the case of, say, a very small nanobot, like a chirp wasp, could be nefarious. It could be to assassinate your adversary's army or assassinate certain people. 
it turns out that if you look at DNA, uh, people in a given region, let's say in the Middle East, in a, in a given country, share certain DNA characteristics that are different from yours and mine. Mm-hmm. And so you could have a, wep- uh, a weapon of genocide where you are, you are killing people, the innocent along with the, the actual combatants, uh, using a, uh, a nanobot. Now, again, the military isn't talking about their nanobots, but the science profession the, uh, or the medical profession is uh, uh, talking about them uh, quite a bit. And here's one place where uh, they're going to make an enormous difference in, in our health. Um, I'm going to give you two examples. Uh, researchers in London, Michael Sharp and Natalie Mount, uh, modified T-cells. Now, T-cells are uh, part of the components of your blood, mm-hmm. and they genetically engineered the T-cells that, that are used to fight diseases. They genetically engineered them so that they would detect only the cancer That's in the correct. body. And by doing that, uh, they did a clinical trial and uh, out of 16 patients that were terminally ill, that were going to die, they were in the final stages, they cured 14 out of 16. The mm-hmm. cancer went into remission. Now, that's, that's phenomenal. that is an important use of nanobiology. Here we are modifying the genetic structure of a T cell and curing cancer. Mm-hmm. Pfizer, for example, partnered with uh, Dr. Blanchett from the uh, Bahan University Robot Laboratory, uh, and they uh, were making DNA robots. And they had a very interesting um, concept, which uh, I think holds a lot of promise. They took a strand of DNA and uh, they folded it upon itself, DNA is, is in the nanoscale already. It's a very small uh, uh, strand. And uh, they folded it on itself so that it would hold a minute amount of cancer-fighting medication. Mm-hmm. And then they uh, programmed it so that it would seek out a cancer cell, a single cell of cancer. Wherever it was, wherever it found the cancer cell, it released the medication to that cell. So it performed the function of delivering the medication Mm -hmm. to that cell and only that cell. Now, today, the way we fight cancer is that we essentially flood the the, uh, patient's body with a uh, cancer uh, medication which kills healthy cells as well as cancer cells. Mm-hmm. And the hope is that it will kill the cancer cells faster than the healthy cells. Um, but people going through chemotherapy 
uh, have a terrible time of it. Often the, right. the cure is, uh, is uh, terrible. Mm-hmm. In this particular case, the cure would be very targeted and highly effective, and Pfizer is set to go into human trials. This is not, you know, mm-hmm. Pfizer is a big company. Right. And they are set to go into human trials. They haven't published anything. But I, I believe that we're looking at uh, probably within five years, Johnny, that uh, mm-hmm. we will see on the market new treatments based on nanotechnology and nanobots that attack cancer at the cellular level. Right. Very, very interesting. These are the technology that is good for mankind. There's so many areas of opportunity to use nanotechnology to contribute to the advancement of humanity in many ways. Now, the concept is almost very interesting, like the military line. Rather than sending the whole battalion, (laughs) you're sending special forces in there that targeted specific areas that you need to eliminate, basically. So that's that's very, very very good analogy. That's essentially what we're doing with medical uh, nanotechnology, that uh, it's very targeted. Mm-hmm. In the case of uh, military, uh, the problematic aspect of nanotechnology is that it's far easier to develop, for example, nanoparticles than it would be to develop a nuclear weapon. And it can be developed within the country, the adversarial country itself. So it makes and it has no telltale signatures. If if someone were building a nuclear weapon, it has the radiation telltale signature. This has no telltale signatures. So we are and at this point in time, as 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 we talk, there are no. Uh, sanctions, there are no controls, there are no treaties that prohibit the use of nanoweapons in warfare. So if, if we were to develop a, uh, a, a nanobot mm-hmm. and release them by the hundreds of thousands, millions, inside an adversary's border, uh, there's no treaty that prevents us from doing that. Yet it's as uh, dangerous as exploding a nuclear weapon in that country. Right. Right. And the idea that something could go wrong, that there could be a glitch in the programming, that the weapon doesn't stay contained within the adversary, but actually spreads beyond that, is a possibility. And the most scary of all of them is self-replicating nanobots. Mm-hmm. These would be nanobots that uh, actually build copies of themselves as they carry on their function. They use the materials that, they're, that, they're, uh, that are at hand to build a copy of itself, and then they continue to carry out its function. And now what you have is, for all intent purposes, you have a technological plague Very, very interesting. And of course, you were mentioning about the regulations and so forth, because we do have the regulation against the use of chemical weapons after World War I. 
Now, you mentioned about releasing nanoweapons in, say, a country's drinking water and so forth. But technically, nanoweapons is not chemical weapons. So you're right. It's not covered under any treaty. Uh, as as it stands today, my mm-hmm. my suggestion in the book, and I, I devoted a chapter to it, was to look at it relative to the weapon it mimics. A nanoparticle mimics a chemical weapon. So in in my opinion, we don't need to develop a whole new set of treaties for nanoweapons. What we need to do is start classifying them under the existing treaties and saying, okay, nanoparticles will now be considered a chemical weapon. A strategic weapon such as a self-replicating nanobot could be covered under the same kinds of treaties that we cover other strategic weapons. So my, my thought on it is, and I'm coming at, from it from the standpoint of a physicist, is sure. that rather than develop a whole new set of treaties, let's look at the, what nanoweapons mimic and say whether or not those type of weapons are covered under the existing treaties. And I think we could do that. But uh, the other thing I think, and I, I know we're getting close to wrapping up, but the other thing I think, uh, Johnny, is that we are mm-hmm. a reactive species, mm-hmm. and it's going to take some a very clear demonstration of how potent nanoweapons are for, to galvanize the world community to say, we have to do something. We have, this cannot be allowed. We can't tolerate this. Right. And that's what happened with nuclear weapons. We had, a, we had to detonate two of them in Japan, and then it became clear that, well, this is a weapon that could end the world. And with biological weapons, we knew from plagues, you know, when you look back right, at the right. influenza plague of 1910 and so on, uh, and the Black Plague during the Middle Ages, that uh, plagues could wipe out, uh, biological plagues could wipe out uh, large segments of the human race. I think the mm-hmm. uh, the bubonic plague uh, took out 10% of the world population. So we have to look at that and say, all right, uh, in certain respects, certain types of nanobots uh, have to be considered the same as a biological weapon. So true. What would you like for the readers to gain from reading nanoweapons, a growing threat to humanity? Well, I'd like them to first get an appreciation that there is a new class of weapons that has been intentionally downplayed. If you go to the uh, National Nanotechnology website, you won't find the word nanoweapon in it uh, anywhere on the website. Although you can find that about 15% of the budget goes to military, DOD, and another portion of the budget goes to agencies that support the uh, military. And I made an estimate that uh, somewhere between about 40%, maybe higher, of what they're doing has a military application. Mm-hmm. For example, if you make a steel, which they have, that's 10 times stronger than the steel we make today, then mm-hmm. you can make a tank that's 10 times lighter than the tank we make today with that steel, and it will be just as strong 
as as the tanks we have today, but it'll go further because it's not as heavy. It could carry more munitions and so forth. So basically, I'd like the the uh, lay public uh, to be aware of that, to work with their uh, representatives. I like people within the government and in the policy making areas of the government, in the Pentagon and in our military to uh, become aware that this weapon uh, needs to be looked at uh, in the sense of uh, that we develop it without uh, uh, causing an event that would uh, eradicate humanity. Mm -hmm. Uh, The main Mm -hmm. question that I raised in the book is, is it possible to develop these weapons without causing human extinction? And indeed, it could get away from us. Right. So uh, my uh, uh, motivation was we need to uh, have in place safeguards that we don't let it get away from us. So true. But in the end, as they always say, weapons don't kill people. People kill people. That's correct, too. And also, uh, Johnny, there will, will be, in as far as we can see, yeah. right now, there will be rogue states. Right. And they have a whole different set of values than we do. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, uh, we need to, as we're trying to uh, uh, prohibit the proliferation of nuclear weapons, we need to do our best to, to prohibit the proliferation of nanoweapons. So true. Where can someone go to buy your book, get more information about you, and keep up with your latest happenings? Okay, well, uh, buying my book is relatively easy. It's carried by most Barnes & Nobles. Um, I've done a recent book signing, and I was told by one of the readers that it had already sold out. Mm-hmm. But uh, they'll be reordering uh, anytime they're selling out of uh, books. They'll be reordering them. But most Barnes and Nobles will have it. Uh, it's available online at Barnes and Nobles. It's on Amazon at Bar- uh, if you want to buy it from Amazon. It's uh, online at Barnes and Nobles. It's online at Target, for example. So there are, there are many uh, avenues. If you want a copy right now, today, your best bet is to call a Barnes & Noble and see if they have one on the shelf. And they probably, they most likely do. Uh, if not, they can get it for you very quickly. Or if you're uh, a member of uh, Amazon Prime, you can have it within two days uh, by ordering it from Amazon. What is your website, Louis? My uh, science website, which is a blog that I write quite a bit uh, about uh, nanoweapons and uh, a number of scientific subjects that are concerning, like uh, climate uh, uh, climate change and things along that line, is LouisDelmonte.com, L-O-U-I-S-D-E-L-M-O-N-T-E.com. That's my science website. My uh, speaker website, if somebody's interested in having me uh, talk at a, uh, an event, is uh, Louis Del Monte Speaks. So it's my name with the word speaks.com. Fantastic. 
As we close the show, and since our show is about people, family, and living life, would you like to share a recipe for living with our listeners this morning? Yes, thank you. Uh, I think we should view each day as a gift and uh, that we should give it purpose. And that purpose uh, could be, for example, devotion to family, um, devotion to uh, excelling at your, at your work if you're a student, trying to excel at being a student. But basically, take the gift we're given, the gift of life that we have each day, and to make it count. And Fantastic. in my case, I, I feel I've been uh, blessed. And uh, what I'm uh, doing, in addition to my devotion to my family and uh, my extended family and my grandchildren, I'm writing books that I, uh, that I hope will have enduring value and uh, help prevent um, uh, technology from getting out of hand. So that's my recipe. Fantastic. It was wonderful. Louis, thank you for the wonderful recipe for living and for spending this hour with me on From My Mama's Kitchen Talk Radio. To all our listeners, please join me next Tuesday morning, July 18th. My guest will be Lisa Barnett. She is an international best-selling author, teacher, and healer with more than 20 years' experience in spiritual healing. Lisa is also the founder of Akashic Knowing. Lisa and I will be discussing her latest book, from questioning to knowing, 73 prayers to transform your life. For additional information about this show and future shows, please go to fmmktalkradio.com. Thank you for listening and have a blessed week. Louis, it has been a true pleasure. Thank you again and have a blessed day, sir. Thank you, Johnny, and it's always wonderful to talk with you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. knows not to judge a man by his car's multicolored paint job or absence of modern gadgetry. Who cares if it's technically old enough to vote and the windows are powered by the strength of your left arm? Your monthly payment is zero, and it'll stay that way. Because with over 500,000 parts and a little Napa know-how, you can keep anything on the road. She may not be pretty, but she's all yours. That's Napa know-how. Napa know-how. Honey, where'd you get the projector? Work. See, we've got to look at 12 car sites to find our new car. Well, I just went to Capital One's Auto Navigator site and found our perfect car. It's three miles away. What about financing? Already done. We're pre-qualified and can see our rate and monthly payment all without affecting our credit scores. Wow, that was easy. But now i got to get this back to the office. Find and finance the car you want. Visit CapitalOne.com slash Auto Navigator today. Subject to credit approval. Terms and conditions apply. Final terms may change. Vehicles sold by eligible dealers and are subject to availability. Offered by Capital One N.A.